Hello out there in podcast land. This is Inside the Box, and this episode, we are on the 50-yard line for a discussion of a time in the 1960s when the NFL actually had some pretty stiff competition on Inside the Box. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. You've got spunk. You are a meathead. Good night, everybody. No! Hey, hear that, Elizabeth? Dynamite! This is CBS. Bang, zoom! I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Right, Columbus. That's the way it is. Hey, looks like it's a spot for all of us in a show. The following program is brought to you in living color. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! Welcome back. Thanks again for downloading or tuning in to uh, Inside the Box is the TV History Podcast. I am Jonathan Bullinger, and with me again are my co-hosts, Andrew Salvati. Andrew, how are you this evening? Marvelous. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. And, of course, Steve Voorhees. Steve, are you, uh, are you ready for some football? Absolutely. Okay. So, obviously, uh, if you've downloaded this, uh, you see that uh, this episode of Inside the Box, we're going to be talking about the American Football League of the 1960s, and basically the role television played in allowing the league to almost beat the NFL, really, uh, before the two leagues agreed to merge back on June 8th, uh, 1966, with the actual merger occurring before the start of the 1970 football season. And to be honest, this particular podcast episode is in really inspired first and foremost by this wonderful documentary, uh, Full Color Football, that was produced by NFL Films uh, for the Showtime channel back in 2009. Now, if you haven't seen this documentary, uh, episodes are still on YouTube and through the Remember the NFL, uh, Remember the AFL rather dot com website. And while I'd love to do nothing more than to sit here for the next few hours and just talk about the documentary, and I, I know Andrew sort of shares that passion with me, unfortunately, we just don't have that kind of time or focus. So rather than drawing upon the documentary and other sources, Andrew, Steve, and myself, we're really just going to sit down and discuss the role of television and how it played in football, and specifically its relationship really to the American Football League uh, on this episode. So... What's interesting is we tend to think of the, of sports and the behemoth that is the NFL um, as really just that uh, sport. But we really don't understand the marriage between sports and, and uh, television. So first, I just want to give some uh, historical context via a few dates that we can understand this relationship between sports and mass media, especially during the early 20th century. So first off, we have to think about what are the sports that were dominant. And the first is really baseball. Baseball really came back onto the came into the scene really back in the 1850s uh, in the U.S. and basically about 20 years later we really had the first intercollegiate football game, and that was uh, uh, for some for all of us here our alma mater Rutgers versus Princeton back in, in 1869. So really for the if you think about it for the rest of the 19th century and I hope I'm using that term because I know Andrew is is a real stickler for yes using please don't say 1800s <laughs> 19th century will do Thank so you. the 19th century. Um, but it was really baseball and college foot, football that captured that U, the U.S. sporting imagination. So it really wasn't until 1920 that the entity that we now know, and some would argue, and I'll put myself uh, in that group, uh, that we can't escape from, that we call the NFL, that was really born then in 1920 as what we called then the American Professional Football Association. So, I mean, think about that. So 1850s baseball, 1869 collegiate football. Uh, if I'm doing my math correctly, it's not really till 70 years later that we really get the inkling of, of professional football uh, just, just to, be, to, to be starting. And it's really here in the 1920s that mass media comes into the story because we first hear, the, uh, the, I should rather say, the first baseball uh, radio broadcast that we hear is on August 5th, 1921. And that same year, we also had the first broadcast on radio of college football games. 
So essentially for the next 20 years, I know it's kind of hard because we're, we're so immersed in media now, but really for the next 20 years or roughly from 1920 to 1940, if you were living in that time, you're really, and a sports fan rather, you're really just listening to baseball or collegiate football. Um, and, I, and I say college football because the pros are around, but they're a rudimentary form. So that's really the, the, the area that we're living in as far as sports and mass media in the early, early 20th century. It doesn't look anything like what we know now with this, this NFL behemoth. So I don't know if you guys have, uh, have tuned in or, or downloaded our other podcast episodes, but really uh, the first NFL game was actually televised uh, back in 1939, October 22nd, by NBC. And we had talked about in other episodes the World's Fair and the introduction of television, RCA, etc. Now, obviously World War II occurs, and this sets back the development of the adoption of television until the late 1940s. So really the first NFL championship game to be televised doesn't occur until 1948 or uh, doing my math. What is that? uh, Nine years uh, later. Right. Um, And that was the Eagles versus the Cardinals. And thank God it was two teams that still exist because that's the problem. As you look back in the history is there's so many teams that don't exist anymore. It's a big, it's, it's a big gobbledygook. Titans. Titans, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So, um, so we've also talked about in other episodes is the, uh, the curious story of the Dumont network. And, and we know that that network was something that was existing in the 1950s. Well, here we see the NFL in the 1950s basically being the only pro game in town with various networks, including Dumont, really uh, really learning how to broadcast these games and fight for, for, for uh, rights to do so. So that's, a, that's really a, 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 a brief summary of sort of where we're coming from with this context of sort of sport and media, sport and media. Um, but just to give you a little bit better of an idea, uh, because if you've seen this documentary, for so those of you listening who have seen Full Color Football, you understand that it's really about the AFL and the AFL's challenge to the NFL and how uh, strong a challenge it was that they ended up having to, to result in merger. But I don't want you to come away from the documentary thinking that that was really the only time they were seriously challenged uh, or that they were the lone competitor in the 20th century. In fact, there was always people sort of hungry or sniffing for profit from the, the pro football game. So um, if you do a little bit of homework online, you can see that there's actually quite a laundry list of attempts to do alternative pro leagues during the early 20th century. And I don't want to get bogged down too much here in fact, in, in dates and, and names, but essentially what you have here is you have something else that was called the National Football League, no relation to what we have today, tried in 1902. Then later there was the Ohio League, the New York Pro Football League. These are around 1918. Then there was another league called the American Football League of the 1920s. And then even right before, uh, uh, right before the 50s, we had the All-American Football Conference that actually lasted a few seasons but, but folded in 1949. And, of course, uh, those of you listening are probably much more familiar with the later attempts in the 20th century uh, d- during the 60s and after the 60s of attempts, including the United Football League, the Atlantic Coast Football League, the Seaborg, <laughs> Seaboard Football League, the Continental Football League, which I've actually seen an NFL Films documentary on. That was fascinating, mm. the... I want to say it's the Pottstown Firebirds. It's it's there's a there's a, a poor man's Joe Namath in there that is is mind blowing. He's so full of himself. But that's for another podcast. Um, and the World Football League. Um, all, all, again, that's all sixties and seventies. And then we all know another great documentary. If you haven't seen this one, USFL that occurred in the nineteen eighties. Uh, World Football League of the nineties that became the uh, the Europe League, NFL Europe eventually. Right. And then I think Andrew was talking before we went on the air about the XFL or Mc, uh, Vince McMahon's attempt um, in the early two thousands. So, so if you think about that, I know of you listening, you might say, well, with that much short term competition to the NFL during the uh, during the twentieth century. 
why the heck uh, devote an entire episode just to the AFL, the 1960s? Aren't they just another competitor amongst this long list of competitors? Uh, why don't you talk about that story? Why just this story? Well, it's because television really started broadcasting in full color at this time with, with AFL, which makes that important. The AFL game was similar to the type of high-scoring collegiate form that we're currently enjoying, where everyone's scoring 60 points a game. Uh, and uh, it also had important, uh, but not necessarily intended, civil rights landmarks, which full-color football certainly devotes a few episodes to. And it almost severely wounded the NFL. If you think about it, it's sort of like what they always say, and I think I mentioned this in another episode, you know, they always say the Beatles so amazing, and then someone says, yeah, they did all that in eight years. AFL basically grew, just started and challenged the NFL within basically five years. Mm-hmm. Um, which, And you say, well, why? How is that possible? Well, the big part of that is those television contracts that we're going to talk about. And um, and ultimately, why we're focusing on the AFL in this episode is really it's a story is, is just the story of, of the beginning of football and television being married, um, which is not to be understated. So... We're going to talk a little bit here about um, sort of where we were at when the AFL began, and uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about the uh, about the uh, the full color documentary. Exciting new development on the American sports scene came to life in 1960 with the birth of the American Football League. Teams at New York, Buffalo, Boston, Denver, Oakland, Los Angeles, Dallas. So I don't want to take time in this episode to really tease out the convoluted genealogy of various NFL teams. Uh, some are still existing, some long since dead. But it's really it's safe to say that during the early 20th century, pro football leagues and teams were constantly in flux. Uh, these teams slowly began to stabilize during the 1920s and 30s, but it really wasn't until the relative uh, stability, I'm sorry, it really wasn't the, uh, the really the, the relatively stable behemoth that we know today when we think of NFL. So really for the sake of ease for this episode, I think what we're going to do is just talk about the AFL of the 1960s and especially 1960. So first we need to see what was the NFL uh, looking like in 1960 when this new competition sort of came on, came on the scene. And you can all this information obviously is available online. Feel free to look it up along as you're as you're listening to this. But you'll see that the NFL basically was two conferences: a Western and Eastern conference. And the Western conference really just consisted of the uh, the Packers, the Lions, 49ers, Colts, Bears, Rams, and Cowboys. And the Eastern conference, somewhat surprisingly, had uh, one one less uh, team, and they were comprised of the Eagles, the Browns, Giants, Cardinals. Weirdly, the Steelers and uh, and the Redskins. So, as I sort of joke, is is uh, is if you don't see your favorite team listed here at the NFL in the 1960s, well, you're kind of probably probably out of luck if the AFL didn't come along. Now, um, Andrew, I know you're not a, a major sports fan, but but uh, uh, what was your what was your team if you had one when you were a kid? Oh, uh, Jets, definitely Jets, Jets all the way. Oh yeah, never Giants. Yeah. No, never Giants. Uh, yeah, I mean, the interesting story there, and I think this is true for a lot of people who grew up as Jets fans, is that, um, you know, the parents wanted to get the season tickets, and of course the Giants waiting list was like decades long, so what did you do? You went to Jets games. Right, right. And what about you, uh, Steve? Were you a big fan of any team? Uh, Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, I grew up in Eagle country as well. I, I actually adopted the Steelers from my older brothers, but I grew up uh, with an uncle who was a diehard Eagles fan. So uh, it was fun with that time because they were talking about the Buddy Buddy Ryan Eagles and the headhunting games and all that. Sure. And it, was, it was a it was a good time. 
But, I mean, in the case with Andrew, is the Jets aren't there. The Jets aren't on this list of NFL right. 1960. Now, I'm not making the argument that the NFL would have never expanded. I'm sure the popularity and the television revenues would have been there, but it would have been much, much uh, slower if the AFL hadn't come to challenge. So what we have here is the AFL is started by, if you watch this documentary, Full Color uh, Football, uh, Lamar Hunt, who eventually is the one running the Kansas City Chiefs. He's born into wealth. He's got enough money to uh, to uh, start this league, essentially, and smartly just goes after the dis- disaffected uh, 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 would-be buyers of going who wanted into the NFL and said, well, there's enough interest here. Why don't we just start our own league? So he starts the spearhead to start the AFL. And so in 1960, they start to play, and the teams that uh, that are part of the original American Football League are the the Oilers, the New York Titans, which is uh, Andrews then below becomes Andrews then beloved mm-hmm. Jets, Buffalo Bills, the Boston Patriots, which I, I kind of like that that name a little better, but uh, the New England, but that's me, the Los Angeles Chargers, the Dallas Texans, and um, and the uh, Raiders and the Broncos. So. I mean, that is a, lot, a huge chunk of the, the current NFL, that if it's not there, we, you don't have that team, you don't have that love, you don't have a big part of that history. Well, they started off, like I said, in 1960, and um, this, was, this was a key part of it, which was they were able to secure a, a television contract with ABC right away. Now, prior to that, um, we mentioned that uh, an NFL game had been televised back in 1939 at the advent of television. And this is where the kind of history gets a little confusing. Is it was the, the team? I don't. I doubt you or or anyone else would know who this was. But it was the uh, ni- uh, 1939 was the Eagles versus the Dodgers. Mm. The Dodgers were a football team, so that was kind of weird. And then in 1950, we actually saw the Rams and the Redskins have all their games uh, televised. But remember that this is a rudimentary television, and it's all black and white. So it's a very different experience from what we're enjoying currently with our. 80-foot HD, beautiful home uh, theater monitors, right. etc. And as Steve had talked about in a another ex- episode when we were talking about DuMont Network, um, DuMont at the time were trying to be big players. They actually paid 75000 to broadcast the 1951 NFL championship game. And they'd also held the Saturday night NFL TV rights for three seasons from 53 to 55. But as we talked about in the other episode, uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, NBC took over after Dumont ceased operations, and they actually upped the ante and they paid a hundred grand to the NFL for the rights to broadcast that championship game. And this is really where we get into, and I know Andrew's going to talk about this later, but we really get into this mythology of the NFL, what is self-created, which is if you, even if you're, I think you're a casual NFL fan, and certainly if you're a diehard fan. You have been told and drilled into your brains that the most important game that had ever been played was the 1958 NFL championship game between the uh, the Colts and the Giants because it went into overtime and it really demonstrated to the television audience that football could be an exciting television product. And it's it's if, if you don't quite remember this, those who are listening, it's that audio you hear on almost every NFL films production where it's where you hear the announcer. And I apologize. I don't remember the announcer's name, but it says, you know, Amici in for the score and the crowd goes wild. And now they're actually colorizing that footage and you see Johnny United's hand off and all that. Well, it's um, it's important because it showed the popularity of football and it showed that television wanted television wanted football. So just two years later, the AFL starts, and they understand the importance of television. They want to get in on this. 
And just to give you some context, um, CBS also had an NFL package in 1956. And by 1959, the big market teams like the Giants, they had all their games televised. But in the NFL, small market teams did not. So Green Bay, you might see the games. Sometimes you, you may not uh, uh, see those games. So not only is it that they go after the television contracts, the AFL here, why we're focusing on this, but it's what they did with those television contracts. That's the important thing here. And um, I always, I, I believe it's, it's uh, uh, really starts with Bill Veck. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about Bill Veck, or maybe you heard there was a, a movie that was done, or maybe it was going to be done a few years back called Veck is in Wreck. Or, or, yeah, Veck is in Wreck. And I think for a while, Bill Murray was attached to it and all this stuff. He was the owner of the Cleveland Indians, right? Yeah, he was the owner of Cleveland Indians and very big innovator with baseball. But in 52, as a baseball owner, what he said is we should pool together as a league and share any revenue that we secure through television contracts. And Lamar Hunt, who spearheaded the AFL owners in, 19, in 1960, went, yeah, we, we should do that as well yeah. because we need to have everyone together just to survive this uh, going after the NFL. So that's exactly what they did so afl had the first ever cooperative television revenue plan they divided that contract from from abc amongst the eight teams and that alone probably would have been enough to kind of keep them going for a while but the other reason that we're talking about the afl is is the other innovations that are beyond just the contractual innovations um really what you had at this point i know it's difficult if you're a 2014 audience to think about this but when you're watching a game in the late 50s on television you're watching a black and white game with a camera uh, stationary at the 50-yard line, and they might have had one other camera, but these are not sort of the mobile, and Steve, I forget if you know this term, but you know whatever those little like uh, production trucks are where the camera are mounted on that go sure. zooming down the side, you know, sidelines, that doesn't exist. Well, AFL is the first to have mobile cameras when presenting the game, which I don't know if you guys have done this recently, and I, I realize you might not watch a lot of football uh, uh, these days because we're all a little busy, but um, just try to think of watching a football game now without the uh, the pulley gyroscopic uh, whatever that thing mm -hmm. is the camera I know you're going to say I wouldn't matter I wouldn't notice but you would because we're so used to having every possible angle now that even when that's taken away it feels like a different game so could you imagine not only not having that but not having a camera in almost every possible angle in the stadium just sort of a stationary so right. so uh, really created uh, really captured the dynamicism of, uh, of the game they were also the first two mic players which again if we're talking about sort of self-historicizing we all know we've seen those goddamn NFL films a million times of Hank Stram being miked, who, uh, coincidentally, Hank Stram, a lot of his work was done in the AFL, but we treat it as if it's the history of the NFL. Uh, you know, keep keep uh, keep matriculating the ball down the field, boys, you know, and he's got that great mm -hmm. uh, William Shatner 60s hairpiece on, just like the same as Shatner. Um, so we've seen that. We know they were Mike, but the AFL was the first one to do that because they wanted to capture drama. They understood that this is more than simply X's and O's. This was this was a, a, a television program. And, and if I can add to that, even more than that, it was also the action on the field. So not just miking the coaches and players, so what's going on the sideline, but you see the big parabolic mics uh, on the sideline nowadays. It looks like huge satellite dishes that these people are holding up and running around. Uh, a football field is, uh, although it's 100 yards long, it's 53 yards wide. So you have to really get a mic strong enough out there. And um, in this full-color football documentary, you know, they, people were just amazed that you could hear the ball being punted a yeah. foot to the <laughs> yeah. ball, right? And yeah. it, it's this idea that, you know, the action on the field is not just silent behind a human voice now, but that 
the viewers can hear the crunching of the pads and helmets and um, sort of the action that's going on the field to to add a little more drama, if you will, or a little more of a um, reality to what they're watching. Yeah, and I mean, and this this is again, I mean, I've been indoctrinated by this by Steve Sable, uh, millions have, but he has said this millions of times as, you know, he tried to break filmmaking into presentations of, of football films. And what Steve is talking about, or the other Steve, uh, not Steve Sable, Steve Voorhees, <laughs> is talking about is is this idea, it's like going to a movie and there's no score or there's no soundtrack. It'd be kind of a boring movie, so why wouldn't Absolutely you want all right. this, 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 this sound? And then another thing which seems kind of simple, but it's actually quite, quite important if you're understanding that this is a performance that is to be viewed and you have to know the story and you have to know who are the players, and I mean this in a dramatic term, not just a football term, uh, AFLs really were the ones to start stitching the names of the players on the back mm. of the jerseys. And, of course, the, the funny segment from Full Color Football is they interview Marty Schottenheimer. He's the now famous coach who, great regular season coach. He can never win a playoff game and all that stuff, right? But they have this great old color footage of him as a player on the sidelines. And literally the start of his name is uh, begins on his, his left uh, arm and goes up and around across his shoulders and it ends on his right uh, arm it's it was such a long name but this is exactly it if you don't know the players you can't sell them as as quote-unquote leading men as protagonists antagonists etc and it's much easier much quicker visually for the audience to sort of get clued into this right and uh i just uh, jump in here uh player interviews uh as well was an innovation uh, of the afl and for much the same reasons as jonathan you just articulated was this is how we get name recognition this is how we you know start building an audience to kind of know our product and who our players are right. and who to root for. And the NFL was much more about the team brand um, and didn't really, I, I guess it mattered for the NFL of who was wearing the jersey, but they weren't bringing that out on their television broadcast necessarily, um, especially since the AFL had the lesser known name brands. You, you almost had to put a leading person on to that right. brand to make and, it identifiable, right? And and, and especially in, 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 you know, as we're recording this in the heart of Giants country, I don't want to, you know, piss anyone off, but of course we understand at the time, and what Steve's talking about is we understand that Frank Gifford was a huge star and he did all those cheesy commercials and he was known. I mean, he was he was as, I'm trying to think who the, the person would be today, uh, I don't know, he's, he was much cooler than Aaron Rodgers, but, you know. Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning, yeah, yeah. but even cooler, like, you know, Mr. Cool Guy. So yeah, the the established NFL team certainly had stars uh, here and there, um, but uh, but yeah, it, it was it was it was sort of the 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 go for all uh, go for anything, do whatever you could to succeed mentality of the AFL, and so so these innovations are here for sure, and that's what we're talking about. But the the details of the contracts again, because this podcast is about television, can't be overstated, and basically. Um, AFL in 1960, they started with ABC with a nice contract, which, again, they agreed to share amongst themselves. But really only four years later, January 29th, 1964, they then jump and sign a five-year, $36 million contract with NBC. Now, again, I, I say this every episode, and maybe it just shows my naivete, but I'm, I'm always floored by value across eras. But $36 million, I know that's like what some backup point guard or whatever makes on the NBA here in some mm -hmm. random team. But that's real, I mean, real money in 1964. And again, your business, if you think of AFL essentially as a business, your business had only existed for four years. You're already bringing in that kind of contract. You're putting pressure on the NFL. So it's, it's really quite astounding. Um, 
And what also then happened, this is sort of the final innovation, and of course it gives the, the title to this documentary that we've been referencing a, a, a almost ad nauseum here, or I have at least, but uh, NBC then announced that its primetime schedule for the fall of 1965, well, it would be almost entirely in color. So at that time, both leagues, if you look through the history, both leagues did broadcast some games in color in 1965, but AFL is really uh, the one we remember due to its association with NBC having just signed that big contract. And, and really, if you had been watching, again, I guess we'll have to put ourselves in the shoes of, I'm guessing maybe our fathers or uncles, right? Um, you're a little guy in the 50s, mom and dad buy a TV, and you know TV and you love TV, but you understand TV to be black and white. And maybe dad likes to watch the Giants or maybe dad likes to watch the Colts or whatever, but you understand Johnny Unitas and that crew cut to be a black and white thing for the most part, at least on, on, a, on an afternoon or, or, or evening game. Um, and then suddenly in 64, 65, it's, it's AFL is different. It's a wide open offense. It's exciting. It's scrappy. And it's, it's color. I mean, you see Len Dawson for the Chiefs in that blazing red and white, you know, or you see uh, uh, Lance Allworth in those beautiful powder blue charger uniforms, you know, sort mm-hmm. of gracefully uh, running up and down the screen. So uh, really, really sort of different, um, really sort of shook up the NFL and quite honestly almost, almost defeated them. But to really sort of put a bow on this, uh, this sort of summary overview of the AFL and why we're talking about it today is we really have to look at, um, we really have to look at what then happens in the late 60s. Um, and this is, of course, this is be right before they decide to merge and then after they decide to merge with the NFL. Um, and really what cemented the marriage between AFL and basically football in general with television was when it really it, it found its proper leading man. This, of course, as we all know, especially from a few years ago, as he was looking quite fly in that uh, that uh, mink coat on the sidelines of the Super Bowl, is Joe Namath of the New York Jets. On uh, on March 28, 1963, uh, super talent agent uh, Sonny Werblin, he led a group to purchase the then New York Titans of the a- AFL. And basically the following month, he automatically renames them the Jets. And no, it's not anything to do with, the, as, we, as we watched in the documentary, it's not to do with the Mets and a New York thing. It's about the 60s and progress and going to the moon and the jet age and geographically being close to the airports, et cetera, in New York. So that's why it chose, chose the name uh, Jets. But basically, Wer- who Werblin was, well, he had worked his way up to become the president of M- MCA's television division and was really credited with representing stars such as, uh, and these were huge names then, Johnny Carson, Elizabeth Taylor, and at that time, he was just an actor, uh, Ronald Reagan. And he also put together huge TV hits like Ed Sullivan Show and The Jackie Gleason Show. So what's interesting, and I think one of my favorite stories from this full-color football documentary, is that Werblin, after buying the Jets, he had this, this approach. Is He basically said, well, I have a check in my hand, and I'm looking for a quarterback. So you kind of would think it would go the other way, logically, right? Mm-hmm. Is you would recognize a great player, and then you would pay him big money. But having been a veteran talent scout, essentially, or a talent manager or a star handler, however you want to call it, having had that experience and understanding that this this football thing was really about television and showbiz, he was looking for his leading man. And he understood that, especially back in that day, is even just giving someone a huge amount of money, that in itself would become a news story. So his original plan, again, I encourage you to watch the documentary, was there was a, a already a quarterback on the roster, and he said if he has a good game, I'm paying him this money, and we're making a big story out of it. Unfortunately for that guy, he didn't have a good game. 
Um, but what happens then is he says instead he waits a few months and for the uh, the draft for the 1965 season is the AFL, specifically the Jets, they draft Joe Namath uh, number one overall. And again, I've said just said this before with the $36 million contract, they give Joe Namath, um, I just want to make sure I have my figure correct here, they signed Joe Namath out of Alabama $427,000. Now I know we live in an age where everybody gets signed for millions of dollars. I think the last big one was um, Sam Bradford of the Rams. I think he's the last of the old system where I think he made, I think he signed for $56 million or something. He never, never threw a snap, you know, never threw a ball mm. in, in the league. So I get it. It's all ho-hum today. But this kid, a part of a league that was considered quite lesser, um, he signs for more money than anyone else had ever signed for. And it became like, wow, well, this guy must be something. This, this guy's my guy. And, and he had an attitude. Now, in the context, and I know Andrew might talk about this later as well, we're also talking about the 60s and there's a generational divide and there, there's up, upheaval. And Joe is definitely sort of cast in the role of the young generation or sort of leading that young generation. So he signs him for $427,000. And so really then what you have is the AFL had this lucrative NBC TV contract. It had its revenue sharing. It, I didn't talk about this much because we don't have time, but at the time it also had its very combative acting commissioner, Al Davis, famous from the Raiders. Yep. Um, it had its owner in Werblin who understood that it was a show as much as a game, and now he had his leading man. And, the, in the, and not only the leading man, but he wasn't in Kansas City. He was in New York City, the biggest market in the world, or rather in the country. And so he signed Joe in 65, on June 8th, 1966, the AFL and the NFL agree that they're going to have to merge because they didn't want to end this sort of costly competition to sign players. Um, and again, if you think about it, June 8th, 1966, this league began in 1960. I mean, <laughs> they brought this league that hey, were basically a monopoly with, with uh, NBC, CBS, and a little bit lesser ABC and DuMont. They were the only game in town, and they came in and they, they basically almost destroyed them. Um, so what's interesting, of course, then, is that less than three years later, uh, in, in 1969, Werblin's star, Joe Namath, he basically gives the performance that he had hoped for. Um, the fact that Na Namath's statistics in Super Bowl III were not very impressive, well, that wasn't the point. The point was that our leading man guaranteed he'd win. He sauntered onto the stage looking the part, and he slayed the villain when the clock expired. Lamar Hunt of the Kansas City Chiefs, he may have built the stage, but really it's Werblin who created the perfect star to inhabit that stage. And he once again had a hit on his hands, and it was basically called what we now know today, professional football on television, or professional football on television in color. And so it's this really dramatic story of business and looking for profits and capturing the attention of an audience who's hungry for sort of this type of uh, uh, sporting excitement on television against the backdrop of all these um, all these racial issues and other issues uh, going on in the 1960s, which the documentary talks about. And then on top of this, what's really interesting and why we're talking about it is Full Color Football as a documentary is an NFL Films production um, that finally, 50 years later, finally has the, the sort of uh, 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 calmness to deal with this issue of this league that challenged them so successfully. 
And it's not a perfect documentary. They still sort of come out with the NFL was always superior uh, um, uh, uh, perspective. And frankly, once your AFL team beats an NFL team, uh, it's all kind of moot. But there's still that. But for the most part, there's a lot of levels here that we can sort of get into, uh, be it uh, the story of the AFL, story of the issues surrounding players in the 1960s, and then basically full-color football as, as, a, as a text or as an ar- artifact the, to, to look at um, and what it says both about then and, uh, and the NFL today. Joe Namath was the only athlete on Richard Nixon's enemies list. I don't have a clue why Joe Namath was on the enemies list, but I wasn't surprised to see him on the list. Because he was so high profile, Namath came to represent the kind of, and I put this in quotation marks, kind of counterculture that President Nixon and those around him saw as a real and present danger to the country. Joe was a Democrat because he came from a union family. But I don't know of any other reason why Joe would be on the list other than the fact that he was thought of as a rebel. If you look at Nixon's feeling about hippies and long-haired people, Joe was a very visible symbol of that flower power hippie generation. You know, it was nice to see somebody out of the mold, but he wasn't really a countercultural hero, per se. Amoth was himself by no means uh, politically radical, let alone even particularly liberal. What Joe Namath represented was a countercultural emphasis on hedonism and individualism. And I think through Namath specifically, people began to associate the AFL, you know, with, with something that was, you know, countercultural and adversarial. it aired in 2009 it kind of you know disappeared it's not available uh as a dvd box set i I don't think yet is is that correct yeah that that's that's correct and i and and i haven't confirmed this but i think the only reason it's also available on the remember the afl.com is i believe uh the contributor to that site is probably one of the original authors that the documentary is based upon you know like one of the books about the afl etc so they probably have a sort of a handshake deal with the af with the nfl but I agree with you. It's kind of weird that the NFL hasn't put it out there. Now, maybe it's just simply that they're already fighting against the conception that their fans are too old as a, as a fan base. And the last thing they want to do is put out some some oldies uh, right. kind of DVD thing, especially with DVDs are, are, are decreasing in, in um, sales. But I'm not sure. It's just interesting that yeah. something so well made and so interesting to watch, at least in my perspective, isn't available. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was great to watch. It was fun to watch. It kind of had like these corny, you know, 1960s soundtrack with like the organ music and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pastel colors and everything. It kind of reminded me, you know, the, the fact that this was produced by NFL films and then maybe because of, you know, internal politics or whatever, it was it was kind of uh, squashed. But kind of reminded me of that that show Playmakers on ESPN. You guys remember that? Sure. Uh, where it was kind of like this this one season. It only ran for one season. Yep. It was a, a dramatic uh, recreation or representation of one season in the life of uh, a football team. And you know, it just kind of, I, I think from what I remember, you know, the, the NFL felt that it was uh, such a, such a, uh, a poor presentation uh, of, or a poor representation of what they were, kind of made the NFL teams look bad because there was so much going on in this. Anyway, it kind of, the, the full-color football kind of reminded me of this show in, in, in that respect. Um, uh, but also, I mean, it's kind of interesting that, you know, <clears throat> 
here the NFL and Jonathan, I think we've talked about this before. Uh, the NFL in 2009 maybe feels uh, like it's about time to kind of tell the history of the AFL, of the league that they they merged with. So the documentary itself, uh, the the narrative that it sets up is kind of this commemoration of of the other of the uh, the AFL um, that that they uh, eventually assimilated. Um, so, and then, you know, of course it was, as we talked about, it was, uh, released, uh, roughly coinciding with the, the, the 50 year anniversary. So yeah, the, this idea of sort of commemorating the other or sort of, if the winners write history, you know, what, what are they, uh, how they write that history and, 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 and do the minority sort of, uh, get a voice in it. Now, obviously the NFL is the richest sports league probably <laughs> in the world. And so no one's really hurting from this. But as with any institution that sort of ages, is it becomes more conservative and it becomes uh, protective of its of its revenue streams, and so I think it's sort of uh, an end of an age in that you know a few years back we we had Al Davis finally pass away, and he constantly was at odds with former commissioner Pete Rozelle through the years lawsuits. I I want to have the right to move my team from Oakland to L.A. and this and that. And obviously some of it could just be some petty ego and bad feelings from the AFL days and the NFL days because essentially uh, Al Davis was hoping as acting commissioner of the AFL that post-merger he would actually become the commissioner that Pete Rozelle retained, uh, continued to be. So it could just be those petty things. But in a broader scale, you know, it's sort of that being an iconoclast and, and, and sort of being a bit of a rebel and sort of wanting to shake things up and not just sort of go along, you know, with, with the tide. And so um, it's just an interesting time that with 2009, we're finally willing to commemorate uh, uh, AFL. And then after that, we, we lose Al Davis. We actually lose Steve Sable, who really gave the artistic uh, 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 aesthetic for how we understand NFL football to be. That's why when you know we see films like uh, uh, Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday from 1999, kind of jarring because it's finally one of the the different uh perspectives on presenting nfl football mm. because and, and again I'm, I'm speaking for a particular type of person here which i'm a part of which is you there's a particular uh, um, uh male growing up especially in the northeast where it is almost ritualistic that football is on on sundays and you've seen all the games and you've talked to family members about who the players were they talk about the players they used to know and there used to always be some sort of nfl films production on and they would talk almost ad nauseum about their history and you get that same message over and over and over and over again so um it's interesting you know steve sable's gone um now we have this interesting situation with uh uh, uh nfl network and that's been on like 10 years now and the changing tides with network so i don't want to get off too too much on a different topic but but it, it's it's interesting that we're talking about this now because I think it is a, a completely different league and um, and we really are looking back to an age that just kind of doesn't exist anymore at least structurally. The actual game exists. The game is probably closer to the AFL of the '60s than it's ever been. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah. When the AFL was forming, the NFL was under fire from Congress for being a monopoly. There was no other competition, and it just so happens that the other leagues that you mentioned in the early 20th century. Didn't have, the comp- didn't have television as a way to broadcast their sport. So now you, you sort of have a TV market um, and TV stations in markets that don't have NFL franchises uh, that the AFL sees a way that, hey, we can, we can get this TV contract perhaps, we can start teams. And the NFL actually 
helped announce the arrival of the AFL to get Congress off their back to say we're no longer a monopoly. We can we can pay. Um, you know, um, we're no longer a monopoly, and that was important because players couldn't negotiate salary. They could only go with other NFL owners, right. and the NFL owners rolled together saying, "No, we're going to keep the keep the money down." Basically, so the AFL comes up. How much do you think television contracts were influenced by this sort of lifting of, of a monopoly where players could go to other leagues if they wanted to? Was that any – do you see any connection there between – You mean the size of the television contracts? Like ne- the contracts needed to be so large because you ended up having to pay players so much more? Um, yeah, something like that where I know the AFL, Lamar Hunt, ponied up some money for some players. He had to get at least one name team on this Houston Texans, right, or Dallas right. Texans. Dallas Texans. Uh, and so, you know, how much of that wh- – why did ABC sign the contract with him? That's, what I guess, what I'm asking. Uh, was, was it this influence that there could be big money in this because now we have two leagues where no longer monopoly, people could bargain, and if they're going to be bargaining, mm, it's going to open up the market a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah, well, we or also have to remember ABC was always the ugly duckling of, of the networks. So they wanted, uh, once Dumont uh, crumbled and NBC uh, took the right NFL championship rights, I think ABC probably just smelled, you know, smelled money. From one perspective, right, you could play AFL versus NFL, and they might get a better deal. Um, the, other, the other reason was... Um, they probably uh, probably a little cheaper at that point than NFL, and then at the same time you could look back to the 1958 championship game. It probably had boffo ratings that overtime game between the Colts and the Giants, and they realized uh, at least some of their executives were probably smart enough to see the future that that television was going to keep expanding the number of sets and you know uh, coverage that um, that football was really going to sort of surpass baseball. Uh, uh, as, uh, and I I, I want to say. Boxing, but I mean, boxing is almost like a perennial at that time with television. Everyone sort of loved to watch the fights. Um, so yeah, I think I think those are the reasons why ABC took a to rolled the dice and, and took a chance. But what's more interesting, the more research is needed on my part is, was it simply that NBC bid some ridiculous the ridiculous amount of money of thirty six million later to steal them away from ABC, and ABC was or was ABC unwilling for some reason? I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Mm. Four years yeah. later, four years later, rather, but. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I I do think it's interesting, Steve, as far as and that that's basically how, how the AFL and, and that's what Al Davis, if you, if you understand this documentary, Al Davis was not looking for merger. Al Davis was looking for the destruction, the, the defeat, the takeover of NFL, because and, and again, the story here is, as I mentioned, uh, uh, what the AFL paid Namath, NFL was only willing to pay him about two hundred thousand. And if you think about it, I mean, if you're running a business and you think that sort of a material, a, a resource uh, that you need to complete the job or, or put out the product is going to roughly cost you about 200000 and suddenly the cost more than doubles to 427000 you really can't do business like that. I mean, that that's going to continue to sort of escalate. Now, obviously, we've actually, from a network perspective, we've seen that regardless of whether the NFL is uh, is broadcasting its own games on its network today, whether the ratings are good or if they're not good or whatever, or whether television is fragmenting or, 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 or becoming niche these days, networks are still ponying up billions of dollars just so they can run an NFL game because they understand that uh, the ratings are probably going to be there. Um, so it's funny as they've always held the networks hostage because it's this reliable product, but the costs, I mean, you, that's this is the question that people have these days. 
which is how can this be a sustainable business model when, for the networks when they're ponying up the granted the advertisers are paying for it but billions of dollars for a television package over six seven years you know mm-hmm. it's just it, it seems like it can't last and this is for another podcast but I don't think it'll last I think it'll look very different in a few years so if you look at NBC they've traditionally had a lot of revenue stream come in from both their Today Show and the Jay Leno Tonight Show but if you think about it as in some seasons recently the Today Show has actually gotten beaten some weeks by ABC which changes their ad rates and Leno's no longer there and they get the other guy in if those income streams are going down but yet you have to renew these huge football packages for billions of dollars again just from a basic logic like how can you run a business like that that's what sort of everyone sort of asks because you can't have more money going out than you know money coming in so uh yeah i i i i and of course much like the reason companies are giving music away for free it's sort of like a weird loss leader in the sense of it, it becomes about just keeping people's attention and sort of getting them in the door and then they'll sell you other you know sell you other things and it seems like you always get an audience for an nfl game no matter how poor the product is you know for the three hours or the fact and we don't want to get into this but i don't know if you've actually tried to watch an nfl game lately in real time without dvring it it's literally one play beer commercial car commercial one play beer commercial car commercial fast food commercial <laughs> nike commercial whatever I mean, it's I, 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 I almost for fun want to have someone from the from Britain or something come watch it with me and, and throw their hands up and go like, why would you waste three hours doing this? Right. It seems insane. But that's that's still the model. Stop and go. Right. Yeah. Well, the the other thing I think it's worthwhile bringing up is this idea that the AFL um, embraced the counterculture. And how much television played a part showing Namath on the sideline in the fur coat or the um, the. Um, extra storylines that came with this drama of these leading men in commercials, right? Uh, Joe Namath in the pantyhose commercial, drawing attention, and that he actually showed up on Nixon's enemy list. So Joe Namath Mm -hmm. was the only football player on Nixon's enemy list, um, NFL or AFL, he was the only player, and and how much uh, television played a part in broadcasting this kind of brand that the AFL was putting out there that you know, Al Davis, um, it it was certainly a part of as well, and this um, sort of it's not the three yards in a cloud of dust that the NFL was, but rather this open, loose, long hair, hippie kind of league that um, that young people might have been more attracted to. I, I have to think that television played a large part in broadcasting that image to help them brand and, and maybe attract a different type of football fan. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I personally agree with everything you're saying, but there are counter arguments that have been, have been made with that, which is, you know, you know, football is football, no matter what you look like. And, and if you, you can be, if you're true, quote unquote, counterculture, you're probably not watching football anyway. It doesn't matter if the guy's got a Fu Manchu <laughs> and, and, and long hair or whatever. Then there's the other, then the, as they mentioned in one of the guys, one of the players at the time from the documentary, you know, they say, uh, look, even if we were AFL and they were NFL, we were all sort of educated at the same school, same college, pretty much the same backgrounds. We were pretty much the same guys. It's just that one dude rode a motorcycle and had the, you know, the long hippie hair and the other guy had a crew cut. Um, so that, that would be a counter argument. The other, of course, then is, is time wise as far as, you know, if you look at Namath rookie year, like most rookies, I mean, you look at switching sports here. If you look at Allen Iverson, his rookie year, he looks like a cookie cutter NBA player. And then he really gets his own style, you know, five, six years in. Namath looks pretty much like a cookie cutter quarterback uh white bread quarterback from alabama in 65 
and then he sort of develops that style and then in the 70s he really sort of becomes his own his own sort of brand um well you have to also think you know another argument to this i think is if you look at hank stram's team he was very much cookie cutter NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, no facial hair, no right. long hair. Right. You must wear suits when you get off the bus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there's a story that they arrived at the hotel and someone mistook one of his players for a bellhop and asked <laughs> him to take the bags <laughs> up to his room yeah. because they were so they were dressed so nicely. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't the entire AFL, obviously, but this brand, this idea, sort of comes out of this, and you wonder what a mass medium like television did to to promote that. Well, and 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 I'm glad you brought up that anecdote because. It's a funny anecdote, don't get me wrong, but based on what they talk about in other sections regarding uh, racial issues, you almost kind of cringe at the story because you're like, you know, oh, you know, well, well dressed black guy. Well, you must be the bellhop. You know, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. But um, but that was the other thing with the league is is not out of any high morals, but just necessity. They needed good players or well, uh, best players they could get. So they played more African-American players than they than they could. The other thing was. Uh, interesting of note on on this documentary is that they would just room them by position. So if you were a, a white dude tight end and a black dude tight end, you would you'd room together and live and work together AFL style. NFL. Uh, this is one of my favorite you know stories from this documentary, but it, but you know it makes you both angry and and, and cringe. Is uh, and I don't know if you saw this part, Andrew. If you did, let me know. But I'll ask you the question they asked in the documentary, which is uh, the NFL never had an odd number of African-American players because if you had an odd number of African-American players, it meant one dude had a room with a white guy and they'd never let that happen. They always had a room together. So, um, and of course the, the symbolically, if you do look at the AFL, if the television is broadcasting, basically, uh, you know, if you're, if you grew up in Lily white town of wherever USA and suddenly every guy, almost every guy on this team is is starting is, is is African-American. That was probably very rebellious. Um, the second thing is, is you know, they talk about this. One of the better pieces from this documentary is uh, the AFL All-Star game that they boycotted down in New Orleans because the guys came down to play and uh, they were treated like royalty in the sense that they're superstar players, you know, on the field and all that. That was all great. But at the hotels and in New Orleans, they were treated like scum, essentially, you know, literally non-citizens. And they basically, after going through a day of that, now again, you know, you know counter this to today's stories of every team when they go travel there's always a night of debauchery or some good times be had the night before right it's all commonplace so these guys are young guys are out they they go through trying to have a good time that day before and they come back to the hotel after being you know insulted and and probably threatened uh, repeatedly that day they get together in the hotel room they're like this is bull like we're not doing this and they literally told the league we're not doing this now the league, uh, good for them. They basically rescheduled the game and moved it to a different city because they they wanted to to keep their players happy. Again, you know, I don't know how much you can read into that as sort of a moral superiority or anything like that, or a real love for civil rights. Maybe it was just to protect the product and keep labor relations going, but certainly uh, ahead of its time from this sort of rebellious image in the nineteen mid mid sixties uh, than than the NFL. If we're talking about the racial thing, and I, I think I was talking to Andrew about this uh, off the air. But, you know, Cookie's a great example where he's not the player Jim Brown was, but he's an enticing player of mm-hmm. the time. But he basically loses the first, like, six years, well, five, six years of his uh, athletic prime because he's uh, he's uh, an African-American running back. And so he plays in Canada those first years. And then he doesn't go to the NFL, right? He gets regulated, uh, 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 put down to the AFL. He plays for uh, the Bills, wins a championship with Jack Kemp, 
plays for the Broncos for a year, plays with the Dolphins, and he played, I think, one other place, and I can't remember. Um, and he's sort of like a Bettis-style running back. Um, he's a big mauler type, but and he certainly wasn't the sort of multifaceted human individual that like James Brown is, and certainly not quite as intelligent as my own opinion. But one hell of a football player. Like, like I just I went watching this documentary. I just kind of got enamored with him just physically like just he's just a dominating mauler type presence in the 60s who, again, he never would have been an equal to Jim Brown. But to pretend like as if he was so far out of the league of Jim Brown or any of the running backs was just kind of faulty logic. He would, he would have been solid. I think he would have probably against NFL competition. He definitely would have had probably three. I'd say three, maybe four, definitely one, you know, thousand yard seasons, probably not every year. He probably wasn't that good, but uh, just terrific. And and an outsized personality who I believe, if I'm remembering, I have to go back to the notes, but I believe at the time was in his own way kind of active in civil rights uh, Mm -hmm. uh, activism uh, with other professional uh, uh, players at the time, like uh, Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and, and. I think a really in the late 60s, I think a really young Lou Alcindor or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was at UCLA. I think he was also around as well. So Cookie definitely tried to sort of be in there. He just, you know, he's a different kind of player, but but fascinating, like really. And, and if the media ecosystem existed now, then that it does now, I think he'd be a definite character. Sure. You know, he would be. Yeah. He had every Joe commercial. Namath. Yeah, he had that. He uh, had that kind appeal, of career. But he didn't appeal. have the media coverage. He didn't have the media Namath coverage. Did. Or playing in a city like yeah, Joe Namath. but very, very dominant. Um, very dominant. Mm. Who was... Uh, there's one player that the documentary talked about. Um, he was working in like a mailroom for a few years. Oh, the Chargers. The teams, uh, for the Chargers? Yeah. And then... I, I didn't know if there was a there's a racial component to that, why he was working in the mailroom. But, I mean, it, He was it a former... I can't remember his name. He was a former NFL yeah, player. And right. he took a job after that. And the guy... Um, Hilton, who owned the yeah, charge right. card company, starts the Chargers, which right. I did not know was based on a charge card company. Yeah, um, those, those bolts are fooling me. They should have credit cards. Yeah. On their and it's helmets. a horse, and what the hell's a because because char- the, right, the, right, the right. Chargers yeah. horse is, yeah. is Charger. You know, right. Right? you think of it. Yeah, yeah. And then I think I think it was just he was putting the team together and learned he had a former NFL player in his mailroom and just yeah. Him up. I don't think yeah. it mattered if he was white or black, but well, but 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 no, I think I think I think you're getting at is not necessarily an NFL AFL thing, but just a society thing, which is. You basically have talent right. or brains all over the place, but because of skin color or gender or right. or and you know we haven't even got we, the documentary certainly doesn't get into this uh, and we haven't but or, or or sexual preference and you throw these people away, you just throw them away or lock them away or marginalize them or whatever. I mean that's the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's so sickening about it. Because again, and I'm I'm saying this purely from a selfish perspective of like I like watching football, you know that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. You've robbed me from seeing like Cookie Gilchrist really give it to somebody for like 90 yards almost every week in an NFL game when he was like 19 and probably like most like us like when you're 19, 18, 19, you're kind of like as close to immortal as you're gonna mm-hmm. ever gonna get. Um, uh, you know, just giving it, just doing it. I mean, think about it. It would be like as if Jim Brown, uh, for whatever reason, was like, I'm just going to go play rec- lacrosse professionally and screw the Browns. I mean, you would not have seen Jim Brown. I mean, that, that or, or we talked about with the Dumont thing, right, when we find out the kinescopes get dumped in the ocean. I mean, it's gone is gone. Now, immediately that happened, and it's just the record that's gone. But, I mean, gone is gone. Like, you, once it's not there, you right. have no way right. of getting it back. 
So, um, but this mindset also carried in the late '80s. If I mention the name Doug Williams, oh Doug, I love Doug Williams. Right. What was one of the first questions he got in the post Super Bowl press conference? Oh yeah, the famous. Um, what's it? F- how does it feel to be a black quarterback? Was that I think question? it's how long have you been how a long black have you been a black quarterback? Yeah. Mm. So the guy just wins the Super Bowl, and that's the first yeah. question he gets. Well, the other thing, and too, that's the late '80s, '88, '89, yeah. right? And and they, the other thing too is is what's what's great is that he wasn't he wasn't 21 and just happened to be like a rookie sensation with the Redskins. He got drafted quite high by the Bucks back in I think it was like '79, and he was supposed to be the face of the new Bucks franchise. And it went okay for a few years, and then he got shipped out. I think he played; he might have played in Canada or the USFL for a year or two, and then he got asked to the Redskins, and he had this dynamite year, and he helped win the Super Bowl, and he had that great – I think it was one quarter. He scored like four touchdowns or something. It just annihilated mm-hmm. them. But, yeah, that yeah, it's insane. And, and actually this reminds me of – and, again, I don't want to get too off on a tangent here, but um, – I think we are. We are on a tangent. <laughs> well, you're going to have to yeah, cut maybe, this Maybe then. this finds its so, way in. Who knows? So um, – <laughs> But I was talking to Andrew about this, which is I never grew up in the South. Uh, I never was a Houston Oilers fan. But when you're growing up young, you sort of know all the characters of the football. You know, you know the stars and whatever. And uh, Warren Moon was always, you know, the big quarterback, one of the big quarterbacks of the 80s. And Warren Moon, in my mind, he's basically he's sort of like the sports version of like Billy D. You know, sort of as as, and Billy D himself. and, and, And you know where I'm going with this, but like. Like Billy D was, you know, the the black Clark Gable or, you know, Clark Gable's the black Billy D, right? What, however you want to say it. Um, so he's the prototypical quarterback. And I said this to Andrew, but most people don't realize it. Now he's in the Hall of Fame, Warren Moon. But 1978, I believe, he won the Rose Bowl for Washington and is Warren Moon. And I what I love, too, is Warren Moon. I don't know if you remember what his number was when he played. Number, number one. Number one. Mm-hmm. He's always number I love, you know, I love that kind of cockiness, right? Um, undrafted Warren Moon undrafted he had to go sit in Canada for like five or six years and he won all these Grey Cup camp championships up there whether you think that's legitimate or valid or whatever he did it um, so that again this idea of sort of lost opportunity throwing it away yeah. what you're saying which is still exists in the 80s yeah it exists in the in the in the in the late 70s 80s as well because you basically sat on you sat Warren Moon who now I really I can't back this up totally because I'm sure people who really know football can pick this apart. But to me, he's not he's like it's him and Fouts and uh, and Marino. They're kind of cut from the same cloth. They're these strong arm quarterbacks, traditional drop back passer types, you know, move in the pocket, all that stuff. But you basically you let him sit on the shelf for six years, essentially, before you bring him into Houston. And that's just like that blows your mind. I mean, who would do that today in, in today's world? And I mean this from just a cynical perspective of like, let's say we all work for Nike or whatever, and you're like, it would that'll be like going like, oh, Cam Newton, you're, you, well, he's a different player, but he's more of a mobile quarterback. But like, oh, you're good. I think you could win. We could build a franchise around you. We'll employ you in six years. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, you know how much revenue we'd be losing if we couldn't have this guy selling shoes and sports drinks and apparel and footballs and, you know, starring in a cartoon series or something. You know, it's it's insane. So, um, yeah, the racial element is is. Uh, uh, is appalling and um, I think it, I think uh, the Jim Brown one of the biographies on Jim Brown I want to say something like America I think it's called like Jim Brown American Original or something like that fascinating book you should read it because um, you know it really shows the racism that was existent when he first entered the league and from not del- not like deliberately but just because it was part of the culture of like some stars you've heard of back in the day and like they just were brought up like 
you know, to have that racism sort of there, there mm-hmm. and overt, and it's sort of surprising. But um, yeah, no, Jim Brown. Jim Brown's fascinating. Um, maybe, maybe on a different podcast, we'll we'll talk about. The last thing I wanted to ask, and maybe Andrew, you would be interested in this, or you can talk about, it, is the Heidi game, which included your no. New York Jets. No. A little background on the Heidi game: the Jets uh, were beating the Raiders 32-29. They cut away for the movie. And the Raiders come back and score two touchdowns in the final nine seconds to win the game. This this occurred in 1968. Um, how influential was this? Because the merger was already on the horizon, scheduled for 1970. But uh, Kurt Gowdy, an American, fam- uh, a famous American sportscaster, you know, called it one of the greatest promotions for the AFL because it was one of the few times that any sport made the front page of the New York Times the next day. And mm-hmm. so this this Heidi game, uh, and just a quick backstory: the the Jets were playing the Raiders, and they were winning 32-29 with a few minutes left. And NBC had the Heidi movie scheduled for 7 p.m., so they cut away to the movie because they never heard you know anything different of saying, "Well, I I don't think we can let this game keep going. Start the movie at seven o'clock." The Raiders scored two touchdowns in nine seconds and beat them 43 to 32. Uh, so fans left the game thinking the Jets were going to win. It might be one of the best Jet losses ever <laughs> because it gave the AFL such attention. If the Jets win, maybe no one yeah. cares as much. But I'm just curious uh, for either of you to sort of uh, ponder, was this influential in terms of really being what Kirk Gowdy called the greatest promotion for the NFL in terms – or for the AFL, rather? Uh, what Kirk Gowdy – what Kurt Gowdy called the greatest promotion for the AFL when the merger was already on the horizon. Did it do anything for the AFL to legitimize them, or is this just more a TV blunder that people find to be fascinating? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's more to be... F- oh. oh, no. <laughs> more, more, more to be fascinating than, than anything else. Um, but you had you had mentioned you know with the with the merger on the rise and to have this sort of this sort of promotion. I think it really just, it was more about the network executives not having a clue as sort of what was really the pulse, what were people really interested in watching. Um, and up until then, probably family entertainment like Heidi, you figure demographically it's it's children for sure and parents and who, you know, it's just with this old football game, you know, who, who really cares? Now today, knowing our ratings history from the last 40 years, you know that it almost always an NFL game, especially if it has any sort of stakes, will will defeat any other programming ratings wise. But the idea that they were that ignorant at that point, I admit I'm sort of a, giving them a naivete here without any real intentionality. But um, but well, I think the, it's the just Super Bowl had happened, right? First Super Bowl is 1967. Yeah. This is in 68. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Is it the network? Well, or is it, um, or is it the old guard sort of hierarchical thinking of, of well, I got orders and I told I was said to do this yeah. and not change the don't, right, don't, don't me, change right. it. NBC doesn't? has the AFL at this point too, right? And so they've, yeah. they have that 36 million out there to broadcast these games. That's why I just find it so fascinating. Is it a miscommunication or or was it a disregard for the AFL? It's still NBC's property. Yeah, so. yeah, no, I mean, you want it to be this big thing, but then it's almost more interesting if it's like that silly of a ridiculous reason of like sort of the um, the experiments. And of course, his name's going to fr- slip my mind. Famous obedience experiments. Um, oh, conducted at Yale. 
yeah conducted where where you know you're to shock the learner right. shock the learner and and they go all the way to death you know supposedly yeah. right and to, to understand how evil occurred in world war ii and going along with things now that's an extreme example for the case of the heidi game <laughs> but from the documentary we know that it basically was one of the execs saying like well they didn't they didn't tell me to stay with the game and right. we said now obviously and if it's that short say which is well we are we'd have to give back the advertisers money if we didn't show heidi uh, the first 20 minutes of Heidi, you know, we would lose money. It could just be something as simple as that. And if it is, it's almost fascinating in the sort of banality of it all. So, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's like today, 60 minutes starting at 7 p.m. And therefore, we're going to cut off the national game. Because how many Sundays do people complain about their primetime programming nowadays being pushed back? So that, oh, you know, my DVR didn't record The Good oh, Wife yes, because yes. it started at, you know, 9.16 and right. I lost the ending of my show because football oh. pushed off the entire Sunday night schedule in CBS. I hear it every day. Right? It's, it's almost day. like they did not want that to happen in, in Heidi. So, yeah. oh, with this movie starting at 7? Sorry, yeah. NFL, we're starting this movie at 7. But, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get off on a, on a tangent here, um, but I was, uh, when was this? I guess Monday night. I never I never listened to the Monday night broadcast. I, I find ESPN's uh, broadcast to be just terrible, uh, and I can't stand listening to to, to Rico and, and Gruden. But I I'll watch it. I'll mute it, right? But I looked on the D on the program guide, and it said eight fifteen, and I said, well, that's kind of odd. It usually starts like eight thirty, and it didn't start till eight. The game didn't start till eight thirty. But you know that that extra fifteen minutes of those another five, six, seven ads. That's just pure because they can. They can say on the program schedule, well, the broadcast starts at 8.15. We're charging you a little higher rate than if you were buying an ad before mm -hmm. the start of the broadcast. So I just think it's the same sort of you know idea, which is they probably sold Heidi money for Mr. Clean commercial or whatever <laughs> was the 68 thing. And, you know, uh, that's just my opinion. But again, as we said in other episodes, um, um, you know, there is more research to be done always. And, and if anyone listening has a, has a, a more concrete answer. Uh, or want to correct us, uh, so please do so um, uh, and, and get us some feedback. Uh, one thing I don't think we talked about too much was um, the extent to which the AFL in its you know early years, uh, especially under uh, Lamar Hunt's guidance and some of the other the other big shots in the AFL, uh, was making the league into a spectacle to kind of differentiate itself. Uh, from the NFL, but also uh, predominantly to get a, a viewing audience. Um, and I think the, you know, the, the documentary, I think, does a pretty good job at that. You know, it kind of sets up this narrative from the beginning, as we've said, of, you know, commemorating the other. So here's the AFL. Um, and that kind of allows them to build this, this narrative within the documentary of, okay, well, what did they do to make themselves different from the NFL? And a lot of the things were, you know, the, the, the steps to which, you know, Lamar Hunt and others, as I said, kind of took to differentiate themselves. I mean, there's this one part in the documentary where they say, um, you know, that Hunt's Dallas Texans, um, Lamar Hunt was trying to build this team that would not only beat other AFL teams, but had to, you know, appear to be better or at least beat the uh, NFL's Cowboys off the field, right? So kind of building this spectacle and this kind of uh, hullabaloo around his team. And there were other steps that they took to, to do the same sort of thing. Uh, we were talking before we went on the air, uh, Steve and I, about, uh, well, Steve actually remembered this, about uh, the Denver Broncos had um, 
kind of ride along sort of uh, the horse that would take right. laps uh, <laughs> during touchdowns. Or yeah, you're right, right. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Because the great quote in there is something like, uh, "Like cool it with the horse. You, you've been killing us the whole game. Like I've seen that horse right. runner, or or something like the horse. You're going to kill the horse. Yeah, you're anyway. going to kill the horse because you're killing us. You know, because they kept running it every time they scored." But yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is they, the, the NFL films always mention how, you know, the NFL tried to make it such a spectacle around the Super Bowl, which it certainly it tried to. But AFL really is the originator, as you're mentioning, about wanting to make it a spectacle. The, the, the documentary posits it's because Lamar Hunt always had sort of a thing for showbiz, mm-hmm. even though he seemed to see it such an unassuming kind of albeit wealthy guy. The other thing is, and I, and I, I hate myself for not remembering his name, but... Um, the other element of spectacle, which is is embedded now with the NFL, actually started in the college game. And this one guy who used to promote and put on all the shows at the or, or games at the Orange Bowl collegially back in the sixties. I forget the gentleman's name. He's the first one who married the, Nash, uh, the uh, uh, USA football to military co- uh, uh, commemoration and spectacle, patriotism. Okay, so. Why I'm mentioning this is that I mean, it's, we're not making a, a, a good or bad you know argument as far as whether that should or shouldn't be married to it. But it, again, if if you're like me at least, and you sort of grow up in this culture of football and the loving football and adoring football and all this sort of thing, is if you see almost any game, is there's always patriotic uh, uh, elements to it, and there's almost an unsaid um, belief that those who play football are essentially the same men who would go fight a war or participate mm-hmm. in military, and sometimes that's true, but it's not a constant and it certainly isn't a given. And again, if you go back to both the spectacle that you're mentioning that the AFL introduced, along with then NFL's attempts at spectacle around promoting the merged Super Bowl along with this innovator from the college ranks in the 60s at the Orange Bowl who was the first to marry military and and uh, and 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 football you realize it is not natural and it is not given it is a deliberate choice to meld the two and that imagery and so um, if you haven't seen and or maybe you have I know I've I've shown it to some of my undergraduates but Roger Stahl's wonderful documentary from I want to say 2006 called Militainment he has a wonderful section in there just on that, which is oh, right. um, of, of especially around um, uh, Fox, say, pregame is on an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, uh, Howie Long's Tough Guys, which is both selling the military, the NFL, Howie Long, and I think he even, he even sells Chevy trucks in there too as well. But it, it's this idea that, that, yes, it's become our national pastime, and yes, it's our national holiday unofficially, the Super Bowl, but there is nothing natural or given about holding a football game uh, on a field and there has to be, you know, the charger horse or whatever right. doing laps right. around or an Indian, you know, or, or the, what did you say? The recreation of the battle of uh, whatever, the oh, battle yeah, of New Orleans earlier, or right. the, what were they called? The uh, Kansas City, like chief ets or something like they're, they're the, yes. the first chief like, and chief, chief ends, yeah. you know, just all this sort of crazy or, or they always show. I mean, this is used ad nauseum with Sable's NFL films, which is, that guy in the jetpack, who's there's always a guy in a jetpack in the '60s, right? Personal right. jetpack flying yeah. off as a spectacle, you know. So don't forget the Viking in the balloon. Viking in the balloon, right? And then, and then how it, it uh, crashed and, and it didn't quite work out. So again, it, for those of you who are listening, we're not in any. Or I'm certainly not in any way saying these are terrible things about the NFL or, or they shouldn't be there or whatever. But we have to understand why they're there and uh, when they when they went there, and 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 I think that gives us a better understanding of what it is we watch. 
and, um, and, and, and a greater appreciation for, for what we're seeing and why we think the way we do in regards to these sports because legally or culturally, the NFL has, for the most part, acted like a monopoly since they merged with the AFL. Obviously, that means nothing if you don't think football means anything, and certainly there's millions of people in this country who could really care less about football, um, and that's probably a healthy thing. But there's also quite a few people who devote a lot of time and attention to the NFL, and I think it's much healthier, and, and I am getting a bit on my soapbox here, uh, and so these are my thoughts, not necessarily Steve or, or Andrew's, but um, I think it's a much better viewing experience for you to be a thinking audience member about why you enjoy elements of the NFL versus elements you don't, um, or why things are presented the way they are than if you just sort of stand there, uh, 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 blank, blank, uh, blank stare, mouth agape, uh, you know, uh, 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 pounding beers or whatever, having a good time, but not really understanding why it is you do what you do. So um, I think that's one of the fascinations with uh, looking at a documentary like uh, Full Color Football um, and, and really thinking about the NFL and not not just simply watching it. And I think that your point ties into kind of what we want to do with this podcast in general, which is, you know, take a close look at things that, you know, the three of us in this room sometimes maybe even take for granted and do a little bit of historical thinking, a little bit of critical analysis, and we inevitably find out that, you know, what we take for granted was, in fact, a deliberate choice at some point, you know, along the way that has kind of been obscured in the, the mists of time or the fog of war, as it were, in the years since. Um, right. So I think that's, right. that's a good yeah. analysis. By the way, the guy you're looking for is Ernie Seiler. Oh. Does that name ring a bell to you? Probably. It's, it's, I don't um, know if that's what you, it's from Slate. You see his name in bold there. Uh, yeah, I do. That's it's the guy you're talking about. Yeah, it's probably him. It's just uh, they. The, he's actually <coughs> the author is presented in the documentary, but there's a guy named Michael uh, O'Riard. He's a veteran player, not a star, but he was one of the rank and file in the late '60s, early '70s. He wrote a wonderful book. He's now a, I think he's like a English lit professor or something out in Oregon, but he wrote a book called Brand NFL. Mm -hmm. And it's about the labor issues <clears throat> of the late 60s, early 70s that he lived through and then sort of what the NFL became in the 90s and, and the mm -hmm. early 2000s. But there's another book, which is what he's um, labeled with in the documentary. And I forget what his second book is. It's something like uh, King NFL Kingdom or like Ruling NFL or something. It must be the second book he wrote mm -hmm. about the topic. But um, Really nice, simple prose, um, really good understanding of the issues, and quite frankly, because he lived through them and lived through a specific time of post-merger and labor issues, fascinating read, um, and really interesting as far as his understanding of how they essentially hired away the head of marketing from MTV in the early 2000s because they were really, really worried that their demo their audience was aging mm. much too quickly yeah. and they were not getting in uh, younger people. And that's why there's no, it's no coincidence if you watch NFL Network or um, other broadcasts, a huge marketing push now for women's apparel, uh, women enjoying NFL and right. families enjoying right. NFL and all that stuff and not just guys that look like you or I, or in 20 years, what you and I will look like. Um, <laughs> Don't with me in that. Well, no, well, Steve's forever young, of course, but, um, uh, you know, and, and so that's a deliberate choice on their part to sort of, to sort of grab everything. But yeah, so, so uh, Michael Oriard, uh, for those of you listening, if you can find a book of his in, in, a, in a library or, or, or download it off uh, into your Kindle or something, 
um, uh, really accessible and interesting because again he he was a player so he he understands the culture uh, quite well well thank you for uh, listening to this podcast we hope you've enjoyed this front row seat to the spectacle that was the AFL and an organization that if you can believe it actually took on and some would say beat the NFL um, through the merger at, at, at their own game and uh, hopefully through podcast episodes such as this and if you guys start talking about it hopefully we'll get to see this uh, this great documentary uh, released either on DVD or at least always be a persistent download on uh, a Netflix or a Hulu or maybe even NFL.com uh, it's a documentary that definitely needs to be seen and uh, if you contact Jonathan on Craigslist, he'll sell you a bootleg copy. I will sell you a bootleg copy. But uh, for, uh, for Steve and Andrew and myself, uh, I'm Jonathan Bullinger, and thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. As early as 1923, David Sarno.